Welcome to the Mothers of Misfits podcast. Join me for conversations about how to advocate for our kids in a one-size-fits-all world. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Welcome back, everybody. So glad you are here and joining us for another episode of the Mothers of Misfits podcast. Excited to have a conversation today about dyslexia, a topic we haven't covered yet on the podcast with Katherine Garforth. She is an educational consultant and interventionist based out of British Columbia. She helps families understand their child's unique learning profile and then design an intervention to meet their child's unique learning needs. She also helps on the flip side of things, helping teachers do the same with their students. Katherine, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is, I'm I'm just extremely curious about this topic because I don't get a chance to talk about it very often. And what's really neat is that you're not just a professional expert on dyslexia. This is a part of your story. So can you talk first about your own journey and diagnosis and experience uh, as being a dyslexic? Sure. So I really struggled in school. Uh, learning to read is not a natural process and it needs to be done explicitly for some kids. And I was definitely one of those kids who was failing in the system with a program that wasn't designed for my learning needs. So I struggled and finally by grade three, someone mentioned the fact of a learning disability to my parents uh, and they looked into it deeper. And in grade four, I got a diagnosis of dyslexia. And I started receiving one-on-one Orton-Gillingham tutoring, which started to make progress. And then the school was removed my support in grade five, and I hit Oh, rock. you had, sorry to interrupt you, but just to be clear, you had one year of support and then they took it away? Did I hear that right? So I, my parents paid privately for the tutoring, but they had me in pull-out support, right? So like the learning assistance center uh-huh. um, in the special education classroom. Uh, and then they took it away. It was a brutal year, uh, horrible for like my social and emotional well-being. I was bullied. Uh, and my parents knew that this wasn't the right path for me. I was very fortunate that where I lived, there were schools that specialized in dyslexia and other learning disabilities. So I went to an uh, elementary one that was uh, small classrooms or 14 kids in a classroom and every day each student had one hour of tutoring wow. and the math instruction was small group the biggest class was like five kids in the math class hmm. so it was really that intensive one-on-one instruction and their motto was if you can't learn the way we teach we'll teach the way you learn and like the second day of school I came back and I said to my mom mom I really hate to tell you this but I think I'm gonna like school And this is going from a girl that was running home crying at lunch and after school who hated school and thought she was stupid. And I, my mom would be like, no, no, you're smart. I'm like, mommy, you only have to tell me that because you're my mommy. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I went to another school that specialized in dyslexia for grade eight and nine. Uh, It got to a point where it was too easy for me um, because they were focusing on you know, the more severe or the the kids that were struggling more, but I had surpassed that and I just needed additional support and extra time. So then I went to schools that were um, regular uh, 
private schools. I, I wasn't ready for the public school system again, just because of my negative experience. So I went to private schools and I was able to get through them and succeed. Um, then I have numerous degrees. Uh, I did a bachelor of computer science, a bachelor's of education, a master's in special education with a learning disability specialization, and then my PhD. Um, so I've had a lot of experience from various different aspects. And, you know, in the past couple of years, I've had that experience as a mother because mm -hmm. one of my children does have dyslexia and it's going through that again. And there's that trauma from my childhood that comes into the equation and it just helps me understand how important the work that I do is. When I was in high school, I started speaking to parents uh, and their children about dyslexia because they wanted to understand their diagnosis and how they could succeed. And then this turned into a lifelong passion, obviously, and I do it to this day. Mm -hmm. And I love that you are living proof that even if you have dyslexia, there's nothing stopping you from going through higher education all the way like you have to multiple degrees and PhD. I'm sure that you had to be very thoughtful about how you manage that system. And we're going to get into some of those strategies. But I just love that you're an example of, yes, this is a diagnosis. This is um, a, you know, a learning challenge that you have, but it hasn't stopped you from accomplishing what you want in life. So speaking of kind of um, the diagnosis and understanding this better, before we even hit record, you were teaching me new things, but I'm realizing let's just like, let's deal with some of these terms. Let's break it down, especially for people like me that are really not terribly familiar. So these are learning disorders and you shared with me, there's kind of a family of them. In fact, I know another person, somebody who's a mentor of mine, Kathy Colby. I use her assessments in my work with families, um, actually people of all ages and stages of life. And she's very public about her dyslexia and dysgraphia diagnosis. So I've heard of those things going together. And then you brought up dyscalculia. <laughs> I don't know if I said that correctly, but can you kind of just give us a quick overview of, of what are these things? How do they relate? Can you Do you have them all? Do you have some of them? How does that work? Okay, well, technically speaking, there's the uh, DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that is created and it has the formal diagnoses that are recognized um, in North America and it's often used around the world. And so in there, you're not gonna find a definition for dyslexia or dyscalculia or dysgraphia. It has a bigger overarching term of a specific learning disorder and that can be in reading, writing, or mathematics. And it has different diagnostic criteria. And you have to meet those criteria to get the diagnosis of a specific learning disorder. And then they specify whether it's in reading, writing, or math, two of the three, or all three. Right? Mm -hmm. And then I mean, the, the problem with dyslexia as a term is in the you know the 80s and 90s it was the big term that was encompassing everything but it actually is a very specific part of a reading uh, disorder and there are certain key factors in it that are going to inform the intervention but if a child doesn't have dyslexia putting them in that reading intervention you're not going to see progress right 
So the, the big thing that's important for parents to understand is to get this diagnosis, you typically need a psychoeducational assessment. And I know it's full of jargon and a whole bunch of terms, but it's really important for you to understand that because then you can understand your child's needs and the best way to address them, saving everybody frustration, time, and money if you're in a position to pay for support outside of programs. I mean, there's so many different commercially available programs like Sylvan or mm -hmm. Oxford Learning, Kumon. Now, these programs take general strategies and don't quite individualize it to the student's needs. And while it works for, you know, several people of the population, when it comes to those with a severe learning disability in reading and writing, it needs to be more explicit and teaching those skills at a, a more basic level. There's something called the ladder of reading and writing that really gives a good understanding of the percentages of population, right? So there's going to be about 5% of the population that learn how to read without any effort at all. Then there's going to be another 25% roughly that can do it no matter how they're taught. But then there's 60% of students that need that explicit instruction. And luckily, we're slowly starting to see that shift towards using things like the science of reading and writing and mathematics instruction. So I'm looking what research has shown is how our brain learns these skills, right? Mm -hmm. So when you look at that 60% that needs that additional support, about 40% of those are going to work with the Sylvan, the Kumon, um, and the Oxford programs, no problem. But then if you get the diagnosis and the, you know, the 20% is a little bit of a high estimate, but they're going to need that explicit instruction. And current research is showing that only about 5% of the population cannot learn how to read if taught appropriately. Yeah, that's really interesting that you break it down that way. Uh, and I'm fascinated by what you just said, that it sounds like, if I'm hearing you correctly, you can have a reading disability and not necessarily have dyslexia or dysgraphia specifically. So to make that assumption, that leap is too much. And so we need to get hyper-specific when we're dealing with this cluster of challenges and diagnoses to make sure you you know exactly what it is that you or your child is struggling with. So you know exactly what that treatment or support needs to be. Exactly. And especially when we get into the higher grades. So when we get into the, you know, the intermediate, the, the middle school, the high school grades, a lot of the intervention focuses on comprehension study strategies, mm -hmm. how to understand what you're reading. And it's not addressing the students that are still struggling with actually mm -hmm. reading the word and don't have the skills to decode the word, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. we need to go back and uh, the homework trait for a dyslexic or someone with a specific learning disability in reading with dyslexia has to do with phonological awareness, which is the awareness of sounds within the language and the ability to manipulate them. And so where you see this is when it comes to the child's sound or the individual sounding out words. So if they see a word like cat, and it's very difficult for them, well, cat's an easy example for someone that's more advanced, but at, okay, then blending those sounds together is very difficult for them. And even 
hearing the difference between sounds like k and g, right? And it's not like they don't understand them. And they can tell the difference in conversation. But when it comes to reading and spelling the word, that's where it's tricky. So it's bringing an unconscious awareness that we have in everyday conversation and with the language to a conscious awareness that is needed for this uh, written and the written language, right? When we're reading it and spelling it. Mm-hmm. So how, as a parent, do you distinguish, you, you gave us some clues right there, but how do we know the difference between a child who is just taking a bit longer, maybe that 25% that you said will learn to read no matter how they're taught, but it, it might take a bit longer. I know in our household, my oldest, it, it was the 5%. I mean, he just, it, he barely needed to be taught. He learned to read at a very early age. He also um, is gifted. So that's another element of that. But reading was a breeze. We never had to practice. It just, it was like a light switch happened and he was reading novels practically pretty, pretty, pretty close to that. Our youngest struggled more, but I don't think that he has any um, learning disabilities or challenges, but I saw him struggle. So as a parent, what should we be looking for to know the difference between this is a normal level of struggle and this is something where maybe we should pursue a diagnosis or more support? It all depends on how you're looking at it. So, I mean, the best thing that we can do as a country or as an education system is screen kids early and often. There are very simple screens that are freely available that can identify risk for struggling readers in preschool, right? Mm -hmm. And then we can provide intervention before they're taught to read so they're less likely to struggle. And there have been countless studies that show this is a very effective way at reducing the struggle to reading, learning to Mm. read. And it's not harmful to anyone. Um, And it is just reshaping how the school system works. Now, as a parent, especially if you have young children or you're thinking back to when your child was younger, think about their language. Was it easy for you to understand what they're saying? Were they saying wello for a long time that was more than, you know, typically appropriate? Like it's okay, you know, for a two or three-year-old, but we know four and five-year-old. And so that can hint to a phonological awareness issue, Mm -hmm. right? So they struggle to distinguish the differences between sounds. That's something that you can work on. And if you notice it in those, you know, zero to five years, that's still part of public health. So if you're worried, I would definitely call your public health representative and look into speech and language pathology and also doing a hearing screen because Mm -hmm. there are many children in those first five years that have chronic ear infections that we aren't aware about, right? And that's why you hear about all the kids that need their ears tubes because there's a blockage, Mm -hmm. right? So that can be affecting their understanding of the language and their ability to hear the sounds clearly. So you pop the tubes in, the problem's gone, right? Um, But if you see that there's problems and they're constantly guessing, I mean, one of the problems is how reading has been taught in the past with a balanced literacy or a whole language approach where they're teaching them strategies to remove the focus away from the word, right? But we want them to focus on the word and the sounds within the word and giving them the strategies to sound them out. So if your child is struggling to sound out words, 
and putting them together, then definitely look at doing things. Now the schools can do what's considered a B level assessment. And that's, um, you know, like a, a tier two screen. So they can see with a standardized test, how your child compares to other students at their grade level, right? And you wanna see where their strengths and weaknesses are. If they're performing below grade level, then I would definitely look at going a little bit further, right? Because even if they don't have dyslexia and they don't have a specific learning disorder, there's something called the Matthew effect in reading. And what that is where in the Bible where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, mm -hmm. well, the kids that read get a better vocabulary, better background knowledge, mm -hmm. better things that you, if you're not reading, you're not going to get. You're not going to get that same vocabulary exposure because everyday conversation isn't the same, right? Mm -hmm. As a language rich, watching a movie or watching a television show isn't the same. Uh, something that we do in our house, I mean, I have a, a child with dyslexia and a child with autism who struggles with reading. We listen to audiobooks all the time in the car. Right now we're listening to A Wrinkle in Time. And like we've listened to the Harry Potter books, I don't know how many times. <laughs> same but in it, our household. <laughs> yeah, it's also that language that they can't necessarily read. We still want to make sure we give them the support to help them read, but we're taking away that uh, blockage of not being able to read the text. And this is another thing that in the classroom, if they're doing silent reading for a struggling reader, is not going to help them become a better reader. They're going to mm -hmm. reinforce bad habits that they don't need, and it's better for them to have an audiobook to listen to so can, they can have that language exposure and get the background knowledge they wouldn't get otherwise. So I'm glad you brought that up. I that's an awesome tip. You know, silent reading time, doing an audiobook instead of reading in your own mind. What are some other tips and tricks and strategies that families can use to help their children thrive in the classroom uh, when they have these diagnoses? Well, it comes to really understanding your child's diagnosis. If they have a psychoeducational assessment whether they have a learning disability or ADHD or autism or whatever, the two factors that I think are very important to look at and reference are their working memory and their processing speed. So working memory is a part of your memory that you use when you're trying to use and manipulate information, right? So if you're copying things down from the blackboard or if you are doing a math equation, or even put, typing a phone number into your phone, right? Following directions and a recipe. If you have poor working memory, things are gonna be a lot more difficult for you. And also processing speed. So there are, you know, when you have high processing speed, but the teacher keeps on saying the same thing over and over again and slower mm. because they think that you don't understand. It's not because you don't understand, it's because of how they're saying it, you don't understand. And having them slow it down is just gonna frustrate you. But when you have the slow processing speed, you have to realize that they need that extra think time and it's better to front load them or pre-teach things. So if you have a, you know, a teenager that's going to class and it's better to work on it in the night before what they're gonna be covering the next day. So they have that kind of fresh in their mind to call on mm -hmm. in class and they don't feel stupid. Is this possible to accomplish inside of the traditional classroom or do you advise that families when possible 
of course, there's a financial implication to this for, for most families to do what you did and find a school specifically geared towards students who learn a certain way or need certain accommodations. Like, should we be looking for resources outside of the public system? Depending on your child's difficulty and the school that you're in, yes. The difficult fact is the majority of individuals that are incarcerated and have problems with the juvenile justice system, if you look at their reading achievement, it's poor. Mm. They are functionally illiterate, right? They Mm. can't read and spell and communicate. And another thing that I'm seeing a lot of schools do is they're just giving assistive technology, right? They're giving the iPad and using things like Dragon Naturally Speaking, which are great strategies to help work around and important for an individual to learn, but they're not an excuse for not continuing to work on the skill that the child struggles with. So using something like Speechify in class, when you're trying to read the assignment, great. Keeping up with your peers, great. And there's no problem with having accommodations and support in the class when you're doing the tasks that your peers are, just so you can have the same experience and focus on the same goal in the classroom. But that doesn't mean you don't need the support on the skills outside of the classroom, right? In the learning assistance way. And it's very important if you're able to, to get that one-on-one intervention and to understand your child's individual diagnosis so that you can focus your efforts specifically on their needs. Um, I know in my own case, like for my own uh, daughter with dyslexia, she's going to an intensive intervention program that's targeting her instruction to her needs. And she's made huge improvements in a short amount of time. And yes, it's expensive. And yes, it's a financial burden for us. But it's going to save us a lot in the future. Mm -hmm. And it's going to make her life so much better. Mm -hmm. There's also the problem system that it shouldn't be that parents have to mortgage their house or avoid buying a new mm-hmm. car or not going on a family vacation. Like that, that's broken to me. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. Long term negative outcomes with social, emotional well being mm-hmm. and health when you can't read your prescription and you get those negative feelings of self worth because you can't read like your peers and they seem like they can do it effortlessly. Mm -hmm. Why am I so stupid? Like, I can't do this. And they're not even trying. Well, it's your own experience that we started out with to pull this conversation full circle when when you felt uh, school was a traumatic experience for you. You felt horrible. You you know, you said your mom, you have to say I'm smart because you're my mom. Um, And your self-confidence was rock bottom. And just getting an experience where, and one of the big takeaways from this conversation is that saying that if you don't learn how we teach, we teach how you learn. And when that happened for you, not only did you learn, but your self-esteem, your self-efficacy shot up. And that's, that's huge. I mean, implications of that for someone's lifetime and setting the tone early on in their life for those kinds of, um, measures are also just critical. And yes, it's really important to work on your child's learning disabilities and areas Mm -hmm. that they struggle with, but it's very important to focus on their passion at the same time because Mm -hmm. success breeds success. So that if they learn that hard work pays off for something that they enjoy doing, Mm -hmm. then they're going to learn that, okay, if I do this in another area, it's going to help me get better. Right. 
And mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many other branches that I can go with this, mm -hmm. but understanding that hard work pays off and that not all your time is focused on things that are difficult for you. is really important. It's hugely important. And you know, my mom got me one of those quote tiles when I was younger and it said success is the best revenge. And that has kind of been my motto since I was a little kid is that I was going to prove that grade five teacher that told me that I was a waste of her time, not going to make it to high school or graduate. I'm like, I'm just going to prove her wrong. Mm -hmm. And you have certainly shown that you are very successful in what you're doing and everybody can hear it. I mean, your knowledge is just so deep, so vast. And I wish we had more time to share some more things. But here's the thing. I know you offer a free 15-minute connection conversation. So for families who are saying, I need more of Catherine, I want to know more, we'll make sure that we put in our episode insider newsletters a, a link where families can sign up to connect with you further and then learn more about how you might be able to help them. Because I know you just you have an incredible amount of knowledge and resources and guidance for them. So please, everyone listening, make sure to take advantage of that. If you don't know what the episode insider newsletters are, or you're not yet receiving them, they're just the emails we send out every Tuesday when a new episode drops. We also let you know in your inbox about the guest. We include links to how to get to know more about them or freebies, or in this case, a, a way to meet with Catherine. So make sure that you are signed up for those. You just have to go to mothersofmisfits.com, scroll down to the bottom, put in your email address. That's it. It's like 30 seconds, but so worthwhile because you get to meet incredible people like Catherine and help your kids and help them to believe that hard work does pay off and that they too can be successful. So thanks for reminding us of those key messages today, Catherine. We really appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Mothers of Misfits podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We also invite you to visit us at mothersofmisfits.com.